Welcome to Adulthood Made Easy, a podcast from Real Simple Magazine that will not only help you navigate real life, but win at real life. I'm your host, Sam Zabel. When you graduate and enter the real world, you will get a lot of advice. People will tell you it's so fun. People will tell you to take advantage of events with free food. People will tell you that you'll miss college. But no one will outright explain that graduation can take a really real toll on your mental health. People throw around the word depressed a little too easily, like my favorite show just ended and I'm totally depressed, or they might confuse anxiety with nervousness before a big presentation. But depression and anxiety are two very real conditions that millennials face when entering the real world. A couple things I saw just when I was reading about this on the Internet. According to a survey from Bensinger, DuPont and Associates, millennials reported the highest rates of depression at work. Approximately one in five millennials who sought out uh, sought out employee assistance or work life advice. That's compared to Gen Xers or baby boomers. And millennials are more stressed than any other current living generation, according to a survey conducted by the American Psychological Association and Harris Interactive. Millennials reported they had a stress level of 5.4 out of 10, and researchers considered 3.6 out of 10 to be healthy. So millennials are feeling stressed, they're feeling depressed, they're feeling overwhelmed, which is something many of us are familiar with. So how can we recognize depression? What can we do? How can we help our friends? To help me sort through these questions, I've invited Dr. Tiffany Miller. She's a psychologist and psychotherapist therapist based in New York City. She's joined me in the studio today, and we're just going to get real and talk about what this, what it really feels like to graduate college. And it's not always happy, but it's definitely important. So welcome, Dr. Miller. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And, you know, you and I were talking a little bit off mic, and I revealed to you, and I think it's important that I kind of come clean on the show, which is to say that I struggled a lot with anxiety when I graduated college. And it was something that took me a while to diagnose as, like I said, being anxiety and not just being nervous. And I've always been known to overthink things. And people always tell me, don't sweat the small stuff. And and it took me a while before I went home. I remember going home for Thanksgiving and saying to my mom, something's not, I need more help. Something doesn't feel right. Like something feels too too serious than what I'm used to than me feeling stressed before a test. Mm-hmm. And and you said that you have a lot of millennials in your in your practice and you also deal with maybe outgoing graduates at schools in New York. So is that something you hear from from your patients that it's kind of hard to recognize at first? Absolutely. I do work with college students and college graduates. And anxiety and depression are two very common situations that people face when they're overwhelmed by life, the realities of life, whether you're in college or coming, especially coming out of college, shifting into this new role as an adult, a fully fledged adult is stressful and overwhelming. And it can lead to anxiety, which is sort of the the panic, the worry, the fear. And it could also lead to depression, which is the sadness and the lack of energy and the inability to make decisions and concentrate. And what is it about? I mean, I think people are nervous to say, I think I have a diagnosable problem or I think I, I'm struggling with a mental health problem because they're nervous that they might come off as weak or whiny or I mean, millennials already get a pretty bad rap for being, well, they can't handle anything and they're just, you know, boomerang kids. And and so we're nervous to say, no, I, I feel really, really helpless. Yeah. I mean, why why do you think what can we do to to push ourselves to admit it? 
Well, I mean, the, the, your first question is, why is it hard to acknowledge it? You know, sometimes I, I see that there we do a lot of comparisons in life. We compare ourselves to Janet and Sue and John, who's got this great job or is doing very well. There's also the fear of failure that most, if not all of us have. And then there's just the general disbelief. I have a college degree, come from a decent family. I should be doing well. I should be getting this job. I should be feeling better than I am. So those those are the things that I see that often contribute to this lack of acknowledgement or this this hesitation to acknowledge that depression or anxiety do exist. And we and we think we can handle it by ourselves. Like okay, it's my you know, it's only been 3 months. I need more time to adjust. You know, I'll feel I'll feel better or I'll feel better after the winter. Everyone mm-hmm. feels sad in the winter. Mm-hmm. I got I felt that a lot. I was like, you know, it must just be because it's cold and I'm inside a lot and that must be the problem. But it, it it's obviously not. It's not something that that just goes away. How do you recognize in yourself that you're not just having a bad day or a bad week or or you're not just feeling nervous before a pr- presentation? What are the distinguishing factors that that you need to recognize in yourself that maybe you need to reach out? Some things that I that I hear my patients coming in with is are these ideas that Things are just not the same. I don't feel right. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's this nebulous thing that you can't really put your finger on it. But, you know, some people will talk about uh, just sleeping too much, sleeping too little, any sort of sleep disturbances, eating too much, eating too little. It can go on uh, either end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're looking at kind of extremes. mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Or, I mean, I'm not talking about extremes in terms of eating disorders, but in extreme in terms of your personal norm. Mm -hmm. So if you find yourself gaining a bit more weight or really just not being interested in food in the way they used to be, and that's a prolonged condition, then that's something to look into. Some people have feelings of real hopelessness and worthlessness that just are persistent and, you know, don't go away. Concentration issues indecisiveness, if you've been pretty good at figuring out what courses to take in college and what advisors to pick and all of that, and you find yourself just kind of bottoming out and not being able to come up with good, sound decisions in a way that you used to, then that might be something. And then there's just this general loss of pleasure in things that you used to find pleasurable. Um, Some people used to love going to the gym and all of a sudden cannot get out of bed, Mm -hmm. cannot motivate motivate themselves. Sometimes there's isolation. Mm -hmm. Don't want to see friends, too tired to go and visit grandma or see family. So those are a lot of the, you know, clear signs of depression that, you know, we can look for in ourselves and in our loved ones. And I wonder if there are triggers that might kind of make you feel like you set like that might kind of set you over the edge i think i'm trying to think back to what exactly triggered mine but i i went to move apartments and i've joked before that i'm like oh i hate moving and i hate change but moving apartments was really really set me over the edge i mean even thinking about it now my my heart Mm. rate just went up because i just remember being feeling I can't do like I just can't do this. And that sort of was my tipping point that seemed like such a fun thing. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's what made me feel so to 
I mean, to be honest, I felt stupid. I was like, why am I so upset about this awesome opportunity in New York to move into a new apartment? You know, it's not like I've been totally abandoned. People are willing to help me look places. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I couldn't get myself to do anything. I couldn't get myself to email people back and say, you know, yes, I'd like to look at that apartment. I couldn't get myself to... I don't know, go to the bank. And I was like yeah. totally paralyzed. I mean, what kind of triggers do you notice are people's tipping point? Is that Does that sound like something you've heard from patients? Oh, most definitely. You know, what you're describing is a, a situation of, of, in, of change, of mm-hmm. adjustment, um, a, a shift in your life. And most of us, most of the time can handle, you know, pretty moderate shifts. But when we find ourselves really kind of going to this place of paralysis that you talked about, this place of indecision, and it really is persistent and prolonged, then that's kind of a a sign that this shift has triggered something in you, whether it be a, a situation of anxiety or depression, but it's shifted something to a point where it's too difficult to manage on your own. Do you feel like you've seen more and more patients, young patients, with come forward with these issues? I mean, I've I've read so much that, like I said, millennials are more stressed out than ever. People, I definitely feel like I've read so much more about anxiety as a real clinical condition and not just, oh, I have so much anxiety over this mm-hmm. and I'm so nervous and like da-da-da-da-da. And people are really coming out to say, no, I, I struggle with anxiety. I don't just have it. Like yeah. I feel like recently I've I've read that it's more of a struggle. What what have you seen yeah. from, from your perspective? Because you said you see people from 18 to 40. Mm-hmm. So comparing maybe those 30 and 40-year-olds to – recent graduates, what have you seen with what they're willing to admit and what they what they recognize in themselves? Yeah, it's the millennials. This is this is a generation of, you know, these are the the parents of the millennials have been people who have had a lot of information about parenting. So there's this positive parenting movement. There's mm-hmm. a lot of support. You know, in my generation, we were put in a playpen or like left <laughs> to run wild in the streets. And it mm-hmm. was very it's a very different upbringing. So this becomes like this wonderful blessing that you have these parents who are very involved, very attentive, very nurturing and kind of provide a, a nice scaffold for mm-hmm. their their children. But then it becomes the curse when that scaffold is ripped away yeah. come, you know, 2021 and you're graduating and you're thrust into this world that doesn't provide the nurturing and the support and the structure that, you know, either mom and dad or or the educational environments have um, before. And it's it's just a shocking situation. It really shocks the system. It's jumping into this cold water of reality. And it's it hurts. And I read I've, I read a lot about that, that a lot of people are blaming these heightened states of anxiety to helicopter parenting. And I would never think to blame my parents. for, But I did. I mean, I relied on them so much mm-hmm. more than I'm sure they relied on their own parents. Mm-hmm. And I think that led to and I think and my friends would say the same like that leads to the feeling of shame. Like maybe I shouldn't have been talking to my parents when I was at college, which is obviously absurd (laughs) to just abandon them for four years. (laughs) But a lot of people, there's just that inherent sense of, I think you already mentioned this, and with social media, it's even Mm -hmm. worse, that you feel like you should be a certain way and you Mm -hmm. feel that, you know, you don't want to be the one weak one in your group. How do you talk to patients about those feelings of shame? Yeah. 
one of one of the the ideas that I really push in my treatment is compassion. That we really have to have compassion for ourselves. Our situation is different than everyone else's, and Facebook, social media, all of these places really put us in a space of comparing ourselves and our lives to other people. I mean, you flick a button and turn on a computer and you see smiling faces and baking bread and, you know, children. And baking bread is a real thing. I I don't I just buy it. (laughs) Why are people baking bread and making me feel sad? (laughs) Bread is supposed to be my happy place. (laughs) They're ruining bread for me. (laughs) They ruin a lot of things for many of us. It's true. Yeah. Sorry, that hit a nerve. Continue. <laughs> it's real. It's a real thing. Yeah. And then there are the you know the the millennials going on these fantastic vacations and you know meeting right. up at the bar every night. Meanwhile, some of us are eating peanut butter and jelly and can't afford to get on the subway during the day because we're in our first job and we're right. struggling. And it's there that shame really does come up when we think about the comparisons. Like, why am I this way? Why is so and so that way? Why can't I be there? What's wrong with me? So how do we start to reframe that thinking? How can, you know, you mentioned affordability on the chance that not everyone can afford professional help. Mm -hmm. You know, not every job offers health insurance and and benefits in that way. How can we start to self-treat provided it's, you know, Hopefully it's not serious enough where you really do need professional treatment. But how can we start to talk to ourselves and and help help make ourselves feel better? Mm-hmm. And I just can't stress that it's just that you feel so bad and no one tells you that it's because why would someone say, congratulations on graduating? It's about to get real lonely. <laughs> like that just makes for a really bad card. Yeah. Hallmark would sell no cards None. with that saying. <laughs> So so what can we do? How can we talk to ourselves? How can people who are just graduating class of 2016 mm-hmm. start to talk to themselves and, and treat themselves yeah. better? So your your podcast is really sort of aimed at, at this population to mm-hmm. let them know that they're not alone. Yeah. And that's, I think, one of the first things that can be helpful to know that it's not just me. It is a lot of people in a lot of places right. who are dealing with the situation. So realizing that you're not alone can help you begin to be, become more compassionate for yourself and have this idea that I'm I'm good enough. Mm-hmm. I don't have to be spectacular. I don't have to win super awards. I just have to be the best me mm-hmm. that I can possibly be. And maybe the best you that you can be at this moment is the you that just gets up and showers today because you couldn't yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. we really kind of have to bring it down to brass tacks in a, mm-hmm. in, in a certain sense. But really having that compassion for the self to say, I'm, I'm doing the best that I can and I will keep working at it and, and get to my goal. A lot of people find physical exercise helpful and doesn't have to be the exercise at a fancy gym. It could just be getting up and walking, mm-hmm. getting off the subway or, you know, two stops earlier than your job. I had, right when I started work, I lived a 45 minute walk from work mm-hmm. and it was maybe a 30 minute subway. And I walked to and from work, even in the, I mean, even we were lucky to have a mild winter, but I walked to and from work, I would say almost 
every day. Yeah. I mean, unless it was like blizzard level or like pouring rain, and then I would maybe walk 15 minutes and catch a subway. But mm-hmm. I really remember those being some of the t- I felt so calm on those. Exactly yeah. what you said, walks. And I wasn't mm-hmm. walking fast. wasn't walking. I had to get to work. There's no reason to go fast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I mean, those were your, I think, what, you say, what you're saying about doesn't need to be a fancy gym. It was just walking 45 minutes to work felt incredible. Yeah. And, I that, miss that. and that's your accomplishment. Mm-hmm. You, you've accomplished two things. Yeah, two <laughs> in and that from. day already. Yeah, <laughs> which is great. Not sweating the small stuff. Yeah. We cannot be perfect. We cannot be Susie or John or Mary. We can only be ourselves. And sometimes we're going to be really, really good at something. And other times we're not going to be so good. Mm-hmm. But we can learn and we can improve. So again, back to compassion. We really have to be compassionate with ourselves and understand that we're not going to be perfect, Mm -hmm. especially coming out of the gate or ever. It's just a myth. Right. It's helpful a lot of times to put structure in our days, Mm -hmm. um, especially those times where, you know, I have people who are coming out of school and looking for a job. And my advice is always make looking for the job your job. Mm -hmm. You get up at a certain time, you do this many resumes a day. So again, you have that sense of accomplishment that I know I've done something to push myself forward. It may not materialize into anything, but that's not the goal. The goal is to do something. Mm -hmm. You know, you shower every day, you make your lunch, you make your breakfast, you dinner, all of these things to have structure in your day. Um, it almost feels like taking a microscope, like people are always worried about your five-year plan, but it almost seems like this first year out or first two years out, it's like, look at the microscope view, yeah. like look at what you yeah. look back on your week and say, I showered four out of five days. <laughs> I hung that picture I've been meaning to hang on my wall for yeah. six months. It almost seems like ignore the five-year plan mentality for the first year yeah. is what you're saying. Absolutely. It's overwhelming. Yeah. It, it can be really overwhelming. For some people, it might be a, a soothing thing and a nice, you know, goalpost to have forward. But for most, it's it's just too overwhelming. And right. it's nice to just sort of kind of stay with the present and stay grounded in the present because this is what we know is real right now. Mm-hmm. And we can really rely on that. Right. The other, you know, things that I think about is is staying open to discussing your process, discussing your thinking, your feeling with people that you trust. And it doesn't have to be a therapist. It can be a trusted friend. It could be a parent, a cousin, a neighbor, anyone. But just to try not to keep the process a secret, mm-hmm. you know, the sadness or the depression or the, the worry, the fear, to try not to keep it secret, mm-hmm. to really put it out there as this normal thing that you just happen to be going through at this moment. And it also gives you hope that, okay, I can put it out there. It's real. And it's also going to go away at some point. What I understood of depression for many years was that it often was genetic and it was something that you kind of live with for the rest of your life. Do you feel that this type of depression or anxiety, this postgraduate period is different? Does it have a time limit? It it really can be different. The the depression that you're talking about, the the more genetic one, is something that has, you know, probably an earlier onset and you probably or the person would probably be experiencing this prior to graduation. Mm-hmm. There is an something in, in called an adjustment disorder where there, you know, you can have in, in system, symptoms of anxiety or depression after a 
period of adjustment in one's life, a, a large shift, a large change in one's life. So this is, you know, when I think of the depression related to this millennial life situation, I think of it more as an adjustment disorder type I've never of... Heard, I've never heard that term mm-hmm. before. Yeah. That seems to describe it so perfectly because yeah. you're just going through many adjustments, mm-hmm. plural. Absolutely. And with that in mind, you know, most of the patients that I deal with who are dealing with this don't necessarily need medication, um, don't necessarily need years and years of therapy. It's more of the process of trying to get through this adjustment period to figure out how to manage the emotions, to figure out coping strategies, and figure out ways to concretely help themselves. And I want to talk a little more specifically about anxiety because that's something my friends and I have talked a lot about. Um, that's something that many of us are dealing with. And like I said, I feel that has only recently become understood to be a condition that requires more help than just three deep breaths. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So you mentioned many of the things you notice when you're looking at depression, eating too much or too little, sleeping yeah. too much or too little. What else are we noticing when we talk about anxiety? Well, anxiety, it can be incredibly overwhelming because it has, if you're anxious to the point of having panic attacks, like mm-hmm. it will feel, you'll feel it in your body. You'll, yeah. you'll feel things in your body with depression also. But with anxiety, it's the, the panic aspects are like, a, it feels like a heart attack. It feels like mm-hmm. you're, you can't catch your breath. It feels as though the world is really going to end. It's and if you've never stop. had a panic attack before, it's, it's shocking what your what your body suddenly starts yes. doing. <laughs> yes, it is absolutely terrifying. I've had panic attacks yeah. in graduate school and you know even studying psychology I had no I was not prepared. Because people talk and it's just a problem with our language today is because people will say, "Oh my god, I'm I'm honestly about to have a panic attack mm-hmm. because I haven't gotten this presentation done." And it's like no, you <laughs> luckily yeah. you're not about to have a panic attack, yeah. but but people throw it around that you think, oh, people throw it around so much. It must mm-hmm. just feel like you're nervous. But yeah. what it really is, is so much deeper. Yeah. And most people with anxiety will find themselves in, in a, a state of avoidance. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's uh, presentations at work, they will try to worm their way out of the presentations and really try to avoid it because that fear is so intense. It's so overwhelming. And there's that, you know, feeling that I'm just going to pass out Mm -hmm. or something really, really bad is happening. There's all of this anticipation that something horrible will happen, Mm -hmm. even though it may not have ever happened. Mm -hmm. A lot of like jumping to the worst case scenario, Mm -hmm. too. Your boss emails you, can we meet for five minutes? And you immediately go to, I'm fired. And once I leave this building, it's going to burn down. Exactly. You know, it's, I mean, it really can be that intense. So what do you recommend? You mentioned adding structure to your day, exercise for dealing with depressive symptoms. What do you recommend? I have two, it's a two-part question. What do you recommend for symptoms of anxiety? And what do you recommend if you find yourself maybe at work or out with friends in the midst of of a panic attack, which can be kind of unexpected. Yeah. Anxiety is is a tough one because even in the moment, it's hard to think. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, it feels like acid just sort of washing over the brain. You could forget your name Mm -hmm. at that moment. Like you're so panicked and so uh, worried and scared and all of that. You know, some of the, the, the things that I talk about with my patients is thinking about your thinking. What is it that's going on in your mind? What is it that you fear? 
And sometimes I throw out the question of, well, what is your evidence that your boss is going to fire you today? Mm -hmm. Have you had any inklings that this might happen? How have your performance reviews been? How have you have your relationships been at work? Has anyone said anything up until now about you not being a good employee? So really kind of infusing reality in mm-hmm. those situations to really think, what is my evidence? How could this possibly be true? Mm-hmm. I also think about grounding ourselves in the moment, like right here, right now, I have a job. Mm-hmm. I'm not fired. I am a good person. Everything is going well at this very moment. I need to stick to this place where I am right now and not launch myself into the future of the unknown. That could absolutely be wonderful. Mm-hmm. Something bad could happen, yes, but right now, nothing bad mm-hmm. is happening. So I, I you know, encourage people to really, in those moments when you feel gripped with the fear, to really ground yourself in the moment. And then I also, again, think about compassion, having that compassion for the self that, you know, I am good enough. The world is not going to end, even if I'm fired. There will be something in the future. I'm not going to shrivel up and stay in this corner mm-hmm. for the rest of my life that I really need to love myself and feel good about myself and just see how today goes. I really hope people listening to this can just take that little section and just play it on repeat because you're so calming as you say it. And even as I'm hearing it, I feel like I'm, I, I feel calmer. I mean, when I was going through everything, the person I spoke to was very much of, okay, well, What's the worst thing that can happen? Like you're so nervous about this event. What is your absolute worst case scenario? And maybe it would be that I get fired. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, you're a competent person who will find another job like next next event. What's the worst thing? And getting past that. Realistically, I'm so nervous, nervous, nervous. But what is the worst thing I think that can possibly happen? And although it seems it worked for me often to think. What's the worst thing that could happen? And then exactly what you said. Is that realistic? Is that worst case scenario Mm -hmm. actually possible? (laughs) And oftentimes I was like, I guess I guess rationally it doesn't make sense that my boss would fire me for spelling this word wrong. Mm -hmm. Rationally, that would (laughs) that probably wouldn't look great. And kind of working through that really, really worked for me. But um, do you have any techniques that work? Like I said, when you find yourself in the midst of a panic attack, something that might maybe has never happened to you, if if it does happen to you at work, do you have anything that you that you tell patients to kind of get them through it? I mean, the, the things that I tell people are, are the pretty classic things, yeah. you know, breathing in through the nose, out through the mouth, having this sense of groundedness. Where are you now? Like the, the, the ground beneath your feet is there. This chair that you're sitting in is real. It's solid. It's holding you. You're comfortable. Nothing bad is happening right now to really bring yourself into like the micro moment of the present. I'm breathing. I'm alive. Nothing bad is happening. At this very moment, I can be okay Mm -hmm. and talking yourself into calm or just sitting. Mm -hmm. You know, some people have to leave the office, get some fresh air when they're in that real frenzied panic moment. Um, Some people need to call a friend. Some people just need to walk or go to the gym or, you know, just sit still. Mm -hmm. But calming the mind and bringing yourself into the present and almost having, you know, it's hard to get there, but 
eventually like thinking about gratitude also. There are a lot of things that we worry about that, you know, could happen, but there are a lot of things that we actually have today, Mm -hmm. whether it be loving family or a dog or a great apartment or friends or a great meal today, you know, Mm -hmm. just down to the small things that we can say, okay, things are so bad. I Mm -hmm. have something because we all have something. I think the idea of feeling grounded is is definitely important and helpful, especially like we talked about before in the world of social media, to remove yourself from all of those comparisons and and look at where you are Mm -hmm. presently. I think that's really good advice. And you also mentioned before talking about it with friends and something I was thinking about was, let's say it's not you and you're in a really good place, but you notice, start to notice these symptoms in a friend, be it you know, they never want to come to dinner anymore. You know, they spend Mm -hmm. a lot of time by themselves. They often are texting you with lots of worries and they, you know, they text you every week thinking they're going to be fired and you start to just notice these symptoms. How do you open up a conversation with a friend that, because I expect that there's denial there and they might not Mm -hmm. want to say, no, I'm not depressed. I'm just, I'm just an introvert or I'm just sad or I just like Netflix a lot. And how do you kind of break through and and talk to them about what they might be going through? Well, I'm thinking about particular patients who've come in Mm -hmm. (laughs) on the advice of of a friend. And one of the phrases that often pops up is that the friend has come in and said, you don't seem yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, something seems a little off. Something seems a little different as opposed to, you know, throwing labels like you seem depressed or you seemed anxious. That kind of gets people to, you know, recoil. And, you know, this can be this can be difficult words to stomach at the, you know, at the beginning. So. I would say just, you know, coming in and and commenting on what you see without adding a label, just you used to do this, but now you're doing this or you used to be very calm at work. And now it seems like it's really stressing you out. I wonder if something's going on for you Mm -hmm. to be very concrete in that way. And to refer them to maybe seek professional help. Does that, I mean, you think that that doesn't seem out of place or anything like that? It doesn't seem out of place if the person is is willing and ready and able to hear it at that moment. Sometimes, you know, we can say, you know, I read about this in Mm -hmm. a, a particular place and I'm wondering if it might apply to you to kind of segue into mm-hmm. that that situation in an easier way. And then just talking about how concerned we are mm-hmm. about the person that we love, whether it be a friend or, or a partner or a family member, that we're concerned because this is not their norm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can always encourage people to talk to us, but sometimes it can be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point where when we're feeling overwhelmed, it may be helpful to say, I wonder if it might be good to speak to someone about this and kind of normalize it. Like a lot of people do this. I know so-and-so who does this. And I guess the other side of that question is how do you, if you're going through what you feel is depression or anxiety, how do you open up that conversation with either maybe friends who are, aren't super accept, you know, because it is pretty these mental health conditions are still pretty stigmatized. So either friends who aren't accepting or parents who are quick to say, oh, you're just you're just going through a phase or like I said, it's just winter. You'll feel better in the, in the summer. How do you handle those types of conversations if you're the one who's trying to open up and you're kind of being met with denial on the other side? Yeah. I mean, I think that we are the best experts on ourselves 
And, you know, whether it be, you know, physical things, we know when there's a pain that's not right. We know when there's emotional pain that is beyond what we are used to, beyond what we are capable of managing. And I think really having, again, that compassion for the self and trusting you to be the expert on your emotions. If you're not getting the support from parents or loved ones who say, yeah, yeah, find a therapist, you need to take care of this. Just give it a shot. There's no harm in making that initial appointment. You don't have to stick with it forever. You can just go that one time. Mm -hmm. But um, it's worth it just to find out whether or not, you know, professional help would be useful. Right. And I, if you can't seek professional help, I, for those listening who are potentially recognizing as we talk that they might need some help, I want to make a plug and I'd love to hear your plug for some resources that you have referred to patients, whether it's websites or apps you like or or resources in New York City. I used Headspace, which was an app that helped, you know, just gave you 10 minutes a day of meditating and mm. sat you down in this man in a beautiful British voice, <laughs> which is always calming. Would I kind of decided to start, someone suggested I start meditating and I took 10 minutes a day to calm myself down and try my very hardest to mm-hmm. not think about anything, which usually meant I was thinking about a hundred things instead yeah. of a thousand. And I would recommend that to, even if you you don't feel like you're going through a period of depression or anxiety, just as a person who is making changes in your life and, and taking on all this responsibility, giving yourself the app is called Headspace. And I mm-hmm. think it's a free trial for the first 10 sessions and then you can choose to pay it was really wonderful for me and really helped me, like you said, ground myself mm-hmm. for 10 time, for ten minutes a day. And I always was like, oh, meditation is kind of not my thing. And, you know, I, I'm not going to, I, I can't just think about whatever and not yeah. clear my mind. But it, even just the idea of not thinking as much as I usually do was Mm -hmm. really helpful. So I'm curious if you have any resources like that that you could recommend to listeners or even if it's just breathing techniques you like or something like that. Um, So I don't have any apps to offer, but I... um you know, I practice yoga and mm-hmm. that has been my therapy for many years. So I often suggest if it works for people that, you know, to find a yoga community or a class or something that um, might work. If, um, if only for Shavasana, which is pretty much the best five to seven minutes of your day. Exactly. (laughs) Even if you want to just stay in child's pose the whole time, (laughs) the whole time, get into Shavasana because that will calm you down. Oh, yes. A little shoulder massage and you're set. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There are so many books out there. One of my favorites, if I could Yes, mention please. A plug is a book called The Gifts of Imperfection by a psychologist by the name of Brene Brown. And that is, I mean, that is a book that really, really talks about compassion and loving yourself where you are right now. No bells or whistles, no mm-hmm. advanced degrees or job promotions, just as you are. And I often, often recommend um, that book. One thing that I've started with a couple of patients just recently after getting my own iPhone is uh, what I call a praise journal. Mm-hmm. And what I suggest is that people, you know, we're all riding the subway in New York City or, you know, we have time sitting down if we're not in a city. We have a few moments to sit down at the end of the day or the beginning of the day. And I encourage people to write down a few praises for yourself, Mm -hmm. a few things that you did well today, whether it be making a great meal or doing that great uh, presentation at work or, you know, writing a great paper or, you know, whatever it is. 
it could be the the tiniest thing to write down in your praise journal. And then, you know, I it's just whatever, those notes on the mm-hmm. iPad or in your yeah. phone. Close it up. And then the next day when you're about to write something else down, read the previous day's journal. Mm-hmm. If you have the time, read all the previous day's journals. Mm-hmm. We often forget the wonderful things that we do. We hold on to all of the negative stuff. Oh, I flubbed at that presentation. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was talking to that guy or that girl and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't get my words together and I felt mm-hmm. like an idiot, you know, all of these things that we hold on to and we harp on, but we don't remember the good things that we do. And with this praise journal, we have like a personal archive of our very best. I love that. Yeah. I'm going to start doing that. That's so, so simple. And I think that's the best thing. And in, in when you feel so busy and so overwhelmed is something like that. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. Dr. Miller, talking to you has been one of the most calming things I have done <laughs> all summer. And I'm so grateful that you were able to be here today to talk to me and all of our listeners. And how can people get in touch with you if they do live in New York? Um, let's see. The best way is via email. I again, You don't have to give out your email if you don't want to. <laughs> not being technologically savvy. I don't have a website That's or anything okay. like that. But um, my email is pretty simple. Tiffany Miller, PhD at Gmail. Great. Just if people are in New York, you are wonderful. So I want to make sure if people want to reach out to you, they can. And thank you again for being here. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. This has been such a pleasure. It's like free therapy that I just got. (laughs) This is great. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Adulthood Made Easy. If you have questions or topics you'd like me to cover in the future, just tweet them to me at Sam Zabel and I'll add them to my list. I'd like to thank our editor, Tim Einenkel, and our producer, Kristen Meinzer. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to review it in iTunes. The more people that rate and review the show, the easier it is to find. I'm Sam Zabel and I'll see you next time. Bye.